We come now to the time of our service where we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. So this morning I'd like to encourage each and every one of you to join me in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and in just a moment I'll begin our reading at verse 16. But as you find your place, I, I want to take a little time to introduce for us what will be our Advent theme, Light and Life to All He Brings. Many of you know that that phrase is taken from Charles Wesley's classic Christmas carol, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. In one short phrase, Wesley, Wesley captures for us the fact that Jesus Christ is both the light of the world and the one who brings abundant life to all of his people. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yes. The angels proclaimed his birth. The shepherds gathered to his side. But this Advent season, we're going to fast forward a bit beyond the manger scene to focus our attention on the actual ministry of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see why this Jesus matters for us as men and women and boys and girls. During the first three weeks of Advent, our, our sermon text will all be taken from the Gospels. But as we make our way through each and every one of these passages, you'll notice that all three passages also tie Jesus to the powerful prophecies of Isaiah. As we look on Jesus again, or for some of us as we look on Jesus maybe for the very first time, I hope that we will all see together that there is something old and rich and meaningful, something real and deep, something substantial and foundational and necessary about the life, the ministry, and the work of Jesus Christ. With all of this in mind, look with me now at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful that this morning you have given us the privilege of gathering together from our homes in this place and in this time to sing your praises, to hear your word and your promises pronounced, to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up once again. We pray that you would be at work in our minds and our hearts, Lord, that you would work not only to inform us by your word and spirit, but to transform us by your word and spirit. I pray in earnest that each and every one of us would actually be changed by what takes place here this morning. 
We pray this in great expectation in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may have noticed today, actually Barry alluded to it in our service, that our reflection is taken from C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity. As we begin our journey through the Advent season, I'd actually like to reference another wonderful work by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This first entry in the Chronicles of Narnia tells the story of the Pevensey children and the great trials that they face together in a magical land. If you're familiar with the novel, then you'll know that it contains something of a refrain. At several points in that story, various characters describe the desperate situation in Narnia as always winter and never Christmas. You see, that entire world suffers under the rule of the White Witch. And under her power, Narnia becomes a frozen wasteland where all the animals and all the peoples live their days in slavery, poverty, fear, and despair. If we could, it would, it would actually be really nice to leave realities like slavery and poverty and fear and despair in an imaginary world like Narnia. But we don't have that luxury because we live in a world that is far more broken. The world that is colder and darker than anything Lewis could actually imagine. Each and every one of us, we're enslaved by our passions and our desires. We carry the very real debt of our sin. And although we know deep in our bones, many of us, that we were created for something more or something better, we we can't secure that better or that more through our own efforts. I'd ask you to stay with me this morning. In fact, I would plead with you to stay with me this morning. We are going to walk down a difficult road together here in Luke 4 because we're going to be honest about our sadness, our brokenness, and our weakness. We're going to take an honest look at our slavery to sin and the desperation that that brings to us in real time. But stay with me. Because we are also going to focus our attention and take a long and good look at the very real freedom that is ours through Jesus Christ. As we endeavor to see both ourselves and our Savior today, we're going to take this passage from three different angles. We'll look at the anticipation of freedom, the proclamation of freedom, and finally the realization of freedom. First, let's focus on the anticipation of freedom. Look back with me at verses 16 and 17. Here we find Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. That's a small village in northern Israel. Like most good Jews of his day, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now there's actually, (laughs) it's something incredibly ordinary or mundane about this passage. Jesus is just doing what he and everyone else does. He's there in the synagogue, probably with his family, to worship God through the singing of psalms and through readings from the Pentateuch and the prophets. As an adult member of this synagogue, Jesus could actually participate in the weekly readings and and teachings. So in verse 16, Jesus stands up to read. And in verse 17, we're told that Jesus is given the scroll containing the book of Isaiah. 
As we think about this scene, I actually think it's important to set a little more context around Jesus and Isaiah. So let us, let's just slow down a little bit here. Here in Luke 4, Jesus is just beginning his formal or public ministry. In the first 13 verses of this chapter, Jesus, unlike any man or woman before or since, faithfully resists the temptations of Satan. In verse 14, we we learn that Jesus returns to Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. Jesus begins to preach and teach with authority, and, and the people from the surrounding country, they take notice. So as Jesus stands to read in this synagogue of Nazareth, it is fair to say that at least some of the people gathered there with him are kind of sitting on the edge of their seats. This is a normal day, yes, but they also know that Jesus is at least a little bit different. There's something about this young man that they know that sets him apart, and they want to see it and hear it for themselves. So that's Jesus, a local young man who's beginning to gain attention and even gain some glory as a spirit-filled teacher. The prophet Isaiah was a much more well-known man in first century Israel. Isaiah had lived approximately 700 years before Jesus. During his prophetic ministry, Isaiah served as a messenger of both doom and delight. He preached against the wickedness of God's people, and it was rampant. He warned the nation concerning the coming Babylonian captivity, the sacking of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple. He saw what was to come, but in that Isaiah also proclaimed the promise of a perfect redemption coming for God's chosen remnant through God's chosen servant. Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus reads here in the synagogue, is one such promise of that coming salvation. It's a promise concerning freedom and deliverance. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Remember, God's covenant people at this point had been reading the words of Isaiah for generations. It's been more than 700 years. The men and women of God have waited and waited and waited through multiple invasions, countless hardships, and a centuries-long silence. An old FedEx ad once said the following, Waiting is frustrating, demoralizing, agonizing, aggravating, annoying, time-consuming, and incredibly expensive. If you've ever waited on or for anything of consequence, then you know that FedEx is actually right. Waiting can be frustrating, demoralizing, and aggravating, and it can be costly in our lives. But now work to put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' audience there in Nazareth. Your homeland is under Roman rule. God has been quiet and seemingly inactive for hundreds of years. Your waiting has been long and painful. You feel forgotten, abandoned, ignored, and overlooked. So if you're a first century Jew, or in reality, if you were someone sitting here today, what are you supposed to do? 
In short, you keep on waiting. Reality is that we could take an entire sermon series to build the theology of waiting on the Lord. Abraham waited on the birth of Isaac and the fulfillment of countless covenant promises. The people of Israel waited for deliverance from Egypt. Every Old Testament saint waited for the coming Messiah, and every New Testament saint waits for the return of Christ. In reality, the Christian faith has always been one of anticipation. From the Garden of Eden until the present day, the people of God have waited and waited and waited for that great and final restoration, for that perfect freedom that will be ours in the new heavens and the new earth. So what do we do with all of our waiting? I encourage each and every one of us to remember at least a few essential truths. First, in our waiting, we should remember that the delayed fulfillment of a promise is not the same as a broken promise. Let me say that again. The delayed fulfillment of a promise is not the same as a broken promise. In truth, the Lord may not complete His promises to us tomorrow or even in our lifetimes, but the Word of God will accomplish its purpose. All, all of the promises of God to his people find a yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So as we wait, let us remember that God is infinitely trustworthy and his promises are sure. Second, as we wait, remember that waiting is actually a kind of suffering that God uses to strengthen us as his people. Let's be honest. I know that sounds a little cliche or trite. I know that might even sound a little callous, that waiting is somehow good for us. In reality, I don't even like believing that myself. But we need to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces Hope, and hope does not put us to shame. If this morning we are waiting on the promises of God, then we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is using that weight to do what? To strengthen our character and to build our hope in Him. Third, as we wait, remember that God's desires and designs do not always align with ours. Now hear me well. God will do us good. God is actually far more committed to our eternal good than we are. But we also have to recognize that sometimes, many times, God keeps us where we are for our good. He hasn't promised to heal every disease or to reconcile every relationship or to meet every single longing of our hearts as pure as they may be. But God has promised in His goodness, in His faithfulness, to never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised that nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from His love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Finally, as we wait, 
We can remember that the church is actually designed by God to help us wait in faith, particularly when we are exhausted and forgetful. Think again about this synagogue scene in Nazareth. What are the people of God doing? They're gathering together to rehearse and to reflect upon, to read and to remember the promises of God. What are we doing here some 2,000 years later? The exact same thing. We are huddled together as God's people to remember that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who will not abandon his people. So as you wait on the Lord today, you keep on waiting. Lean into his promises. Lean into his character. Lean into the difficulty and the aggravation. Lean into your doubts. Lean into the broader purposes of God. And lean into your brothers and sisters in Christ. We see the proclamation of freedom in verses 17 through 19. Let's revisit that reading near the middle of verse 17. It says, He, Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mentioned earlier that the majority, or really all of this particular reading, is taken from Isaiah 61. To put it simply, Isaiah is talking about the ultimate salvation of all of God's people. Now that's a good word in and of itself. But if we really slow down to, to, to unpack what Isaiah is saying, I, I think we'll really appreciate the magnitude, the importance, the glory of this prophecy. First, I want you to notice that the individual speaking here in Isaiah 61, he is specifically anointed by the Spirit of God Himself for the work of gospel proclamation. This preacher in Isaiah, he proclaims good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. He even proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. At first glance, we might think that the person in question here is Isaiah the prophet himself, but that's really pretty short-sighted. Because this individual promises freedom, but he also he brings lasting freedom to those who are oppressed. This anointed one, then, is both a great prophet and a great warrior. He speaks and acts with authority. In the broader context of Isaiah, in the broader context of Scripture, we learn that this individual, promised by Isaiah, read about by Jesus, is none other than the Messiah, the great and final promised Savior of God's people. Look again at what is being accomplished by the Messiah, according to Isaiah. There's good news for the poor, the enslaved, the blind, and the oppressed— Ultimately, the Messiah inaugurates or ushers in the year of the Lord's favor. That year of the Lord's favor, that's a reference to the year of Jubilee. According to Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee was specifically designed by God as a prolonged season of celebration, of freedom, and of rest. 
every 50th year, during that year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven. All the slaves went free. And all the people of Israel, they rested from their daily work of plowing and planting and harvesting. In Isaiah 61, the Messiah brings about a greater, a perfect, an eternal year of jubilee. That is good news for the poor forever. Good news for the captive forever. Good news for the blind, the hurting, the oppressed, the broken forever. There is freedom from all debt, freedom from all oppression, and freedom from all suffering and pain. In the middle of the 19th century, chattel slavery had been an American institution for hundreds hundreds of years. By that point, the vast majority of slaves in the southern states would have been born into generational slavery. They knew nothing else, and in the day-to-day, they could really hope and pray and wait for a better tomorrow that seemingly would never come. Many of you know that this year, many Americans celebrated a new federal holiday known as Juneteenth, or don't miss this, Jubilee Day. Juneteenth marks the anniversary of the proclamation of freedom to the last remaining slaves in the state of Texas. On June 19, 1865, General Gordon Granger read the following to the inhabitants of Galveston. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. We don't know what that would feel like. But we shouldn't be surprised that the celebrations that followed that pronouncement, they could hardly be contained. In subsequent years, African-American communities began to buy properties and establish local parks just to host Juneteenth parties. Why? Because freedom is worth celebrating again and again and again and again. Here in Luke 4, we find the pronunciation, the the proclamation of an even greater freedom. We learn that God himself is committed to blessing the poor to freeing the captives, healing the blind, and securing an eternal jubilee for his people. So here's the question. What do we do with this proclamation of freedom? Honestly, we should endeavor by faith to receive this proclamation for all it's worth. That means two things for us, at least practically. First, According to this proclamation, we have to acknowledge that something is fundamentally wrong with us. You see, we are, every one of us, the spiritually poor, the spiritually enslaved, and the spiritually blind. Our sinful thoughts and words and deeds, our difficult relationships and our destructive desires, all of it confirms the bad news. We are all of us spiritually broken, chained, and in the dark. Second, this proclamation of freedom forces us to recognize that we aren't the solution to our own problems, but there is a solution. 
The message here for us is not, hey, join hands, work hard, do better, hope for the best. No. Our freedom, our salvation, it is not secured from the inside out. It comes to us from the outside in. The anointed Messiah comes to us and proclaims the good news. It is the Messiah who comes to us and sets us free. The Messiah comes and inaugurates the lasting year of Jubilee. Listen to the words of Luke 4 again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. By God's grace, by His mercy this morning, if you find your heart longing for, yearning for salvation, then you need to do two things. First, you need to look away from yourself. And second, you need to look to the one who secures lasting freedom for time and eternity. I don't know if you can feel it, but there's something building in this passage. The people of God have been waiting and longing and anticipating. The Word of God and the promises of God have been proclaimed again, again, and again. It's all rising action. Ultimately, it leads us to what? To the realization of freedom. Here in Luke 4, Jesus stands and reads all about the anointed Messiah. He reads about the proclamation of the gospel in the year of Jubilee. And then we get to verse 20. Look at it again with me. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You, you see it here, right? The crowd is waiting for Jesus, this young, local, spirit-filled teacher, to give an exposition of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus then gives a one, literally, a one-sentence sermon in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let that sink in for a minute. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In a handful of words, Jesus actually says the unbelievable. He looks these people in the eye in his own hometown and confidently announces, I am the Messiah. All that work you've waited generations for, that work that has been longed for since the Garden of Eden, it has started. I am here to proclaim the good news. I am here to secure your salvation. I am here to heal your diseases. I am here to free you from the tyranny of Satan and all your debt to sin. I am here to usher in the everlasting year of Jubilee. I am here to make all things right, and I will not be stopped. Jesus is that baby born of a virgin and wrapped in swaddling clothes, yes. 
Jesus is the carpenter's son. But Jesus is also the realization of our freedom. He is the personification of our freedom. He is the fulfillment of freedom. The initial reaction of the, of the people in verse 22, I think, is completely understandable then. It says, all spoke well of him and marveled. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I probably don't say this enough, so let me go on record this morning in saying that I love being a pastor of this church. I, I love coming alongside the children and the teenagers and the parents of this church in the gospel. I actually love sharing life with you. I love leading an amazing team of staff and volunteers. And if I can say it this way, I even love being able to come alongside you as we share griefs and burdens. But you know what else I love about being a pastor? This might surprise you. I love officiating at weddings. I love it. I, I didn't anticipate that when I became a pastor. You think about the preaching and the teaching and serving the Lord's Supper and baptisms and counseling opportunities and funerals. And weddings are always sort of this scary unknown. But I love weddings. You know why? Because I love watching an expectation and a hope become a reality. Think about engagement for a moment. Some of you in this room are engaged, so you won't have to think too hard. What is it? It's the anticipation of something coming that is based on a promise. The couple waits and waits and plans and waits, and then the day arrives, and the music starts the groom takes his place at the front of the church. The wedding parties, they, they enter. And then the doors open. The crowd stands, and there she is, the bride. At that moment, most people turn and look to the back, and we all know why. But you know where I look? I look at the groom every time. I have literally the best seat in the house, and I want to know his reaction. Sometimes the groom, he smiles from ear to ear. Sometimes he, he begins to cry. At one wedding, the groom literally bent over double in overwhelming joy. Why? Because that expectation is becoming a reality in real time. What's happening here in Luke 4? Our greatest expectations, our most significant hopes, our deepest longings are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ in real time. Here he is, the promised Messiah. I said this earlier, but, but let me say it again with even greater clarity and urgency. If today you find yourself bound by sin, blinded by sin, impoverished by sin, 
then by God's grace, look to none other than this Jesus. If today your heart is longing for salvation, then look to this Jesus who has secured lasting eternal freedom for his people through his life, his death, and his resurrection. If this morning, and I trust this is true of many of us, if you are looking to Jesus by faith, then let me encourage you to do two things. First, live. Live in the freedom of Jesus. Today, your life can and should be characterized by an active kind of holiness and righteousness and joy and love and grace and peace and faithfulness and truth. We have the privilege of living in freedom by the strength of the Spirit to the glory of God. Second, if you're looking to Jesus by faith today, then, then long, long for the freedom of Jesus. The Lord has inaugurated the year of Jubilee. But as believers, we also know what? That the consummation of that Jubilee is still yet to come. So as you continue to do battle against sin today, as you continue to face every single disappointment and rejection, as you continue to see brokenness in your life and in this world, as a child, as a student, as a single, as an adult, I want you to do this. I want you to pray a very simple prayer from Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus. This morning we started our journey through Luke 4 and the themes of slavery, poverty, despair, and fear with a discouraging refrain from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's always winter and never Christmas. You know, thankfully that's not the end of that story. You see, there's another familiar refrain in that book that actually follows closely on the heels of the first. Aslan is on the move. As we enter into this Advent season together, as we continue to expect the coming of Jesus Christ and the perfection of his work for his people, may we know together beyond a shadow of a doubt and believe deep in our bones that Jesus Christ is on the move for our eternal good. In Jesus Christ, there is good news for the poor, good news for the enslaved, good news for the blind. For he is our Messiah, he is our Savior, and he alone is our promised freedom. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at the person of Jesus, in every sense of the word, we should be awed, humbled, grateful. Lord, I pray for every man and woman, for every child in this room today, that we would wrestle with the realities of Jesus, that we would wrestle with the realities of our own hearts and lives. 
And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit we would find in Jesus Christ that promised freedom for time and eternity. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.